Uh, two places this morning. Matthew 19, it's our main passage, and Psalm 49. There are about uh, 50 other places I'd love to mark and look at in relationship to the text from Matthew, but we won't have time to do all of that. So we'll just settle for those two passages, Matthew 19 and Psalm 49. So while you all are marking pages, uh, it's going to be a little different uh, scenario this morning. We're actually doing a tag team sermon. The first three verses we look at on uh, as people bring children to Jesus, uh, Warren McIver is actually going to preach on those three verses for about the first 15 minutes. Right, Warren? 15 minutes. And then I'll uh, take the last 30 minutes to... to um, to spend some time looking at the life of the rich young ruler, the man we have come to know as the rich young ruler. So that's the way it's going to go this morning. With that said, I'm going to invite Warren McIver up, um, and we will pray. Father, uh, you have been truly instructing us all along that uh, we are, are having our minds transformed. Lord, there are in our world so many competing messages about value, about purpose, about eternity or lack of. So many philosophers, so many wise people according to themselves. So much to navigate on this earth, Lord. And we recognize and acknowledge that we are just pilgrims. We're sojourners. We're just passing through, Lord. But yet you have us here. You've called us to be salt and light. And we want to know how to do that the best. And so, Lord, we thank you that your word is an anchor. That it is sure. And it's foundational. And it never changes. And it's perfect. And it's good. And it's wholesome. And it's worthy to be studied and understood, and investigated, and lived. So by it, Father, I pray that you transform our minds, and in transforming our minds, you transform our lives until we are with you, and finally glorified in your presence when every question really won't matter. All the things we worried about, and fretted about, and cared about will all be in the past, and we will be face-to-face with, I hope, the one we wanted to see all along anyway. Father, work in us today. Use our lives as we make them available to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. What a blessing to be here to dig into God's Word together with you. And if you've looked ahead, you know we're talking about children. Our oldest son, Jeff, is about, well, just turned 39 years old. And I can remember one day when he was three, and he and I were getting ready to go somewhere. And if you have had or had a three-year-old, you know they don't always cooperate when you're trying to go out the door. And he was finding everything else that he could do to, to, to slow this process up. So I said to him, I said, you know, hurry up. If we don't leave soon, I said, Jesus is going to come back before you're ready. And he stopped dead. His eyes got this big. And he said, Jesus, come back. And I taught, we taught him a lot about Jesus, but we hadn't taught him about Jesus coming back. <clears throat> so I said, oh, yes, the Bible says Jesus is going to come back. And he's still just fixed. He said, Jesus, come back. This house? And I kind of laughed and I said, no, not exactly. The Bible says that he's going to come back in the sky in the clouds. And when I said that, he shot like an arrow to the window, pulled back the curtain, and looked up in the sky. And, and that hope, that expectation, that hunger to want to see Jesus, I think is what, what Jesus is talking about when he said in chapter 18, except you be converted and become as a child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the same thing it continues today. Well, since that time, we've talked about forgiveness. We've talked about marriage and divorce. And that brings us to chapter 19, verse 13. 
Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. In the parallel section in Mark, that last verse, it says, And he took them up in his arms and laid his hands on them and blessed them. So in this passage, we've got two groups of people. First, we've got the people that are bringing the children to Jesus. It doesn't say they're parents. Probably is. Could be grandparents, could be teachers, older brothers or sisters. But you have this group of people who are trying to bring these children to Jesus so he can touch them, so Jesus can touch their lives, so he can pray for them and bless them. And then we have this second group, which unfortunately is the disciples. And they're there saying, stop, stop, you know, don't come. And I wonder why they're doing that. You know, why are they trying to stop these kids? And we think, well, maybe Jesus was tired and and little kids can surely be tiresome. Or maybe um, they thought that Jesus had more important things to do, that he had adults to minister to. And maybe they didn't think that the children were important. And I think that we need to ask ourselves, which group are we in? I know none of us are saying children don't come to Jesus, but I think kind of unconsciously we can hinder them in, in that way. I think we ignore and underestimate sometimes the actual importance of children. George Barna says that 64% of Christians accept Christ as their Savior when they're children. That means 64% of us you know, accept Christ when we're children. And at sometimes we kind of forget that. I know when the kids and grandkids visit, often the, the adults will talk while the kids just play. And even, even here at church, I, I know we don't think this, but we, we can almost think that, well, the important stuff's going on here. And the kids are over there singing songs and coloring and having stories. And, well, you know at this church that, that we definitely teach the kids and are bringing them to Jesus, but we can kind of get thinking, well, they're getting babysat while, you know, we're digging into the Word of God. But in God's eyes, it might be just the opposite. You know? What Tom and everybody else is doing over there may be where the action is, and, and Steve is just babysitting us here. <laughs> well, I was talking once again to my, I mentioned my son Jeff, I was talking to him on the phone last night. And he's, he's in Japan, he'd been in Japan many years. He said, Dad, I, I, I know I came to Japan to be a missionary. He says, but all I'm doing is taking care of kids. And I said, well, you've got six of them. That's your job. That's your ministry. That's your mission field. And it just doesn't take six kids to take 100% of your time. As you may know, so any of us who have little children or big children, we know that that's, that's a huge, we're not wasting our time when we invest in these children. Now, God has done a remarkable work uh, and has used us. We're so honored and privileged to be a part of what God is doing in Colombia. Now, when I say Colombia, I'm not talking about Colombia, South America. I'm talking about Colombia, Virginia. And if you've never been there, you go... Ten minutes from here, down 15 and 6 towards Richmond, and you drive through the town. Now, if you have ever driven through there, you'll see that it, it looks like the tsunami hit there. It's a bunch of dilapidated buildings. But we've been ministering in that community for over four years now. And about three years ago, God led us to start working with kids down there. And we rented a place. One of those buildings down there, we, we have an apartment in the second floor of one of those buildings, and we started having a kids' club every, every Thursday. And I guess we started with about a half a dozen kids, just kids that live there. We play games and have Bible story and have snacks. I don't know if you know, but Mike and Betty Witt, who are part of us, part of our church, are our missionaries to Columbia. Those guys have been down there every week, 
twice a week now, sometimes more than that. If you ever call them on the weekend, you hear the kids hollering in the background. They've got some kids over watching a movie or, or um, you know, making cupcakes or something. But we've done a lot uh, down there. God has done a lot. We had a vacation Bible school this summer. We've taken the kids for a couple of years to the pumpkin patch. We took some to the Bethlehem Walk. Um, we just, uh, God has just so blessed us because these kids are so awesome. We just love them. And we, it's so fascinating to see that, that, that these kids are coming to Jesus. Now, you might remember last September I sent out a, a Yahoo Groups message. It had a picture of us and the kids, 20 of them. We were getting 20 children. And there was Mike, Betty, and I, and Caleb Pace. And we were a little overwhelmed. So we sent out this, this picture and says, we need help. And God sent us more help. Oh, thanks so much for the other people that are helping out there. But we switched to two nights. We have the young people on uh, the youth on Tuesday night. And we'll have six or eight, as many as ten there. And on, on Thursday, we have the younger kids, age four to seven. There's one nine-year-old. And we'll get 15 or 16. Or the most we've ever had is 20. But we, we're starting to see these kids change. And most of them have, have accepted Christ as their Savior. There's a half, half a dozen or so here this morning. And uh, we just pray that this is overflowing into their lives and into their families. We know that when we pick them up to drive them here or there, they, uh, uh, they start singing songs. Joyce is teaching them. Joyce and Tom are teaching them songs, and they're excited because... When they, we get the songs down good, we're going to go to the nursing home and sing for the folks there. So I wanted just to thank everybody, the church for the support, all the helpers, all the people that did the vacation Bible school, all of you uh, folks that are uh, cooking the meals because we serve them a, a, a dinner down there every week, and, and particularly for all your prayers. This is a work that has, has been fueled by prayer because we just... God's doing it. We just happen to be there. And I, I, we've got a little video that shows some pictures of these kids. If you can turn the lights down, and uh, you, get a, you get an idea of, of, of what they look like. I'm going to pray. Lord, we thank you so much for just what you are doing in the hearts and lives of these kids. And we just pray for them and... And, Lord, for the thousands of others in this county who don't know you and uh, the millions in the country, the billions around the world, the young kids that do not know you, Lord. Lord, just enable us to reach everyone we can with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 It is phenomenal what the Lord has done down there. And the interesting thing is that um, psychologists tell us that by by the time a child is six years old, the majority of their behavior patterns have been set by age six. That's why the Bible says train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart. Because those behaviors you learn by the time you're six years old are pretty much the ones that get ingrained. Now, can they change? We all say amen. We know they can. Christ can change those behaviors. But they're not easy to change. So it's always better to build the house right from the start than to have to remodel it later. And uh, that's what's happening. We're, we're ministering to adults in the making. And that's the beautiful thing about kids is, as I said a few weeks ago, they can't drive. But they want Jesus. They really do. We just have to, adults have to get out of the way and, and quit wanting to stay home and go here and go there when the kids really want Jesus. Uh, read a book called No Future Without Forgiveness. I've mentioned it before, the story of recovering and healing from apartheid government in Africa, in South Africa. And the fascinating thing, and this is Warren and I had talked about this and why I'm so pumped about starting children's churches, is because uh, they were able to reconcile from all the hurt and all the abuse during apartheid. One of the primary reasons they were able to forgive through that process was because the people in South Africa, many of them, had been part of Christian schools. So although maybe they aren't Christian themselves, they had learned Christian principles. They had learned Christ-like principles of forgiveness and love as young kids. And that then was their pattern of behavior. So this is very important work. And uh, I've never really considered babysitting you guys before, but it's good work. Okay, moving on. Uh, 
Let the little children come to me, Jesus says, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now, verse 16 says, Behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, we know this guy. Uh, Many of us know him as the rich young ruler. Uh, His story shows up in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. And each writer gives us a little bit different aspect about his life. Every, all three of them tell us that he's rich. We know this guy, is he's living the dream. He is living the dream, as we would say today. He's rich, he's young. And to be rich and young, wow, there's a combo, right? And I've met a lot of people that want to be you know, rich and try to stay young. You know, you can't, time is one of those things, you just can't turn it back. And uh, stuff sags and we try to get it lifted. And uh, Rich and young. Not only was he rich and young, but he had some power. He was rich, young, and powerful. He was a ruler. Now, we don't know what kind of ruler he was, uh, what kind of prince he was, but he, man, living the dream, isn't he? But despite all those things, riches and youth and power, what's the one thing that's eating at him? What, what's bugging him? You see, because riches can get you into a lot of cool places. I mean, riches can get you into nice country clubs. Riches can get you into wonderful restaurants, into beautiful hotels and resorts. But where is that one place riches cannot get you? Into heaven. Riches, you can buy your way into a lot of things, but you cannot buy your way into heaven. And so all of these things he's got, but yet the thing that's still bugging him is he comes to Jesus and he says, it's eternal life that I'm worried about. It's eternal life that I recognize all these things, and that's the thing, though, that there is still nagging on my mind. What happens to me when I die? Because every rich person will die. Every person will. It's on his mind, isn't it? It's it's sort of uh, weighing on him. And he comes, and, and as he asks the question, he reveals an understanding that many have. What good thing must I do? So he reveals a couple things. Number one, that Jesus is a good teacher and that Jesus must have an answer to this question. Number two, he reveals an existing philosophy that you get to heaven by doing what? Good things. If I'm a good person, I'll go to heaven. Are you going to, are you going to heaven? Well, I do good things. I've given to charity and I've done some good things in my life. Yeah, it's those other people that are not going to heaven. They're the people that are in jail. They're the ones going. They're just the ones that got caught doing what you did. What good thing. And we've got to get out. We've got to get. Finally, we've got to get past this. You've got to get past this notion that somehow it's some good thing you're going to do or or some accumulation of good things that you're going to do that's going to get you into heaven. So this is his philosophy. And Jesus works with him there. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? I've been able to, listen, I've been able to buy everything else in my life. I can, even, I can buy health. I can buy possessions. I can buy all these things. I buy what I need. And now here, what, what can I do? Can I, can I buy my way in? Can, what can I do to get eternal life? Are, are you certain about your eternal life? And if someone asked you, are you going to heaven? And how do you know? the answer to that question, what would you say? I got baptized as an infant. I was a member of the church. What would you say? What good thing would you say you've done to to earn that right? And if you answer anything other than the grace of God, then you are sorely mistaken. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not the the right question is uh, not what must I do. The right question is, Jesus, what are you going to do? That, that's, it's him that did it. We just walk in what he did. His sacrifice, his doing. We just get to, uh, to, to have that by faith. So this is the question. Verse 17, so Jesus answers him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Just look. 
why do you call me good? I mean, absolutely good. The, the idea is, actually, the, it might be better worded, why are you calling to me about what is good? Why, why are you asking this question? What are you? There's only one that is absolutely perfectly good, and that's God. He, he's the one that does it right all the time. Not, I mean, I can pull it together sometimes, like maybe have a good day and do a couple of good things. And we tend to focus on like, the good things that we do, but we miss you know, the, the, all the ways we blow it. You know, we're strong in one area, and that's the area we think about. I'm a good person because you know, when I deal drugs, I give people a fair deal. I mean, really, I've heard that. I, you know, I, I was listening to a documentary about prison, and in, there was this in prison... They, there are some, uh, there's an, the Aryan Brotherhood, and these are tough, tough guys. I would not want to mess with them. And they will uh, murder and, and range for murders of people in prisons all over the country. And they do this through their networks. And, and then they began to put out hits on people uh, that were on the outside and their families. And the one guy said, wait a second, I'm a murderer, but I ain't murdering somebody's family. That, that's, we've crossed the moral line there for him. There was even a line, you know. And um, he ended up getting out of that, and, and he had to get put into um, a sort of a segregation, a safe area, and he told the story of how they do these things. But, so even a guy who's committed murder has his, well, I may be a murderer, but I'm not that bad, you know. So we have these areas where we're strong, but none of us pull it together all the time, consistently, day after day, good. Am I right or am I wrong? I mean, we admit that. So, but Jesus says, if you want to enter, if this is the the conversation we're going to have, here's what you have to do. You have to keep commandments, all of them, all the time. Now, the guy's going to ask which ones, but you look at the commandments like a chain of of 10 links. And so we're going to hang someone, just hang yourself from the the ceiling here with a harness by a chain with 10 links. And I'll tell you, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut one. We're only going to cut one. You can even choose which one. And what will happen to you if we cut one? The whole chain breaks. So if you break one, it breaks the whole chain. And that's the idea with the commandments. You can keep nine of them perfectly. But if you break one, you are a lawbreaker, you're guilty, and the wages of sin is death. So we know that. I mean, we're just kind of setting the groundwork for this discussion. So this is what you've got to do. Well, verse 18, uh, he says to him, which ones? I mean, all of, I mean, there's, for them, there would be not just the Ten Commandments, but there was the oral law. There, there was a lot uh, of Jewish laws to keep. Which, which commandments? So Jesus goes through a few of them. Uh, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Uh, another gospel writer uh, adds, do not defraud. Maybe he had done that. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, his response is so interesting. Uh, The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. Uh, Never committed adultery as a 10-year-old. No problem there. Uh, He says, I kept these things from my youth all the time. And do you think he had? I mean, what's his perception of himself? Is it right or wrong? It's, I think his perception of himself is wrong. His perception, evidently he was absent on the day of the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't get that, that message. We'll have to send him the tape or something. Send him the, the CD. Because we know the Bible says, or Jesus said, look, these, these, you shall not murder. Uh, you know, if you've been angry at, at someone in your heart, you, it's like it's, it's all, the motivation for murder is there. And, and if you've looked at a woman or, or someone else lustfully, longing at, then you've committed adultery. And so we know that these law laws the laws of god are are almost like a minimum like and they would say well i've kept all these things in the letter i haven't really done those things we found our way around some of those things but i think his perception of himself is off and i think that's what happens when people say i'm a good person i'm going to heaven because i'm because i'm a good person i think our self-perception is really twisted isn't it our ego is so strong and our pride is so thick that we develop this concept to protect our, ourselves because if we really saw how bad we were, we would be broken before the Lord to admit that, to confess that, that, man, I have really hurt some people. There was a guy who was um, in uh, alcohol recovery and they would have a group that would sit around and 
you know, they would say they would ask different ask different questions and con- confess some things to one another. And it got to this guy, and he would he would always deny, "Oh yeah, yeah, I've never done that, or I've never done that." And finally, they they came to the question of, "Have you ever hurt anybody as a result of your alcohol?" And he said, "No, no, I, I've never. I mean, I, I've drunk a little bit, but you know, I've never hurt anybody when I've done that." And so they said, "Well, we're going to call your wife." And so they pick up the phone, they call his wife. He says, yeah, this is, uh, you know, this is your, your husband's group here. We're just asking a question uh, to your husband. Has he ever hurt anybody when he's been drinking? He says he hasn't. We wanted to know if, if what you would say about that. And she says, oh, yes. One time he went to the bar. and uh, or Actually, he was taking our daughter home from a doctor's appointment, and he went, drove past the bar, and he decided that he would just stop for a minute and just get one quick drink and go in there. And it was winter time, and so he pulls up into the parking lot of the bar, and, and he... Uh, Says to his daughter, you just wait right here. I'll be, Daddy will be right back. And locks the doors to keep her safe. And she's in. It's still running. The heat is still on. Goes into the bar, has one drink, and one drink turns into two drinks, and so on and so forth. And finally, hours later, they hear sirens outside. He finally comes out, and the uh, rescue squad is prying his daughter out of the frozen car because the gas had run out, the heat had shut off, and his daughter was locked in the car frost on the windows. Um, She lost three fingers, and his wife just begins to share this with the group. And as he hears the truth about himself, he begins to quiver and shake uncontrollably as he's confronted with the reality about who he... He had held this false pretense up for so long. And when he was confronted with it, it it broke him. And it's not until you're broken, until you admit that you're broken, until you admit that you're sick, that you can actually get fixed. And Jesus is trying to fix this rich young ruler who's broken. So the young man says, I've kept these, all these things from my youth. Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? I doubt it. And we'll see that he hadn't. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, now don't get distracted by the use of the word perfect. We use the word perfect in one sense. It has a different sense. It's a piece of ripe fruit. That you go, oh, that apple was perfect. I mean, it wasn't too overripe, but it wasn't, uh, not, it wasn't you know, underripe either. It was just perfect. It's like when you, at Christmas time when you buy that gift for the kids and it, it's a set and it requires assembly and you start assembling it and then you realize there's a part missing. That's incomplete or imperfect. And you can't finish the thing. That drives me crazy. Oh, I hate when that happens. So uh, he says... What thing do I lack? What piece is missing? If I've done these things, what piece is missing? And, and he says, I'll tell you the piece that will complete the set or would really uh, uh, make you perfect or, or full or complete. Go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What was he lacking? What was that? He, he asked the question, what do I still lack? What does Jesus answer to him? You lack treasure in heaven. And you don't, I'll give you two things. You lack treasure in heaven and you don't follow me. Jesus confronts him with a choice between being a follower and hanging on to his wealth and his possessions. And, you know, we might say around this room, well, you know, some of us, we have a, I love the diversity of our congregation. Racial diversity, the cultural diversity, uh, you know, not as diverse as some churches maybe in different areas, but I think for Fluvanna, we're doing pretty good. And I think it's a good sign of a healthy church. We have those that are wealthy. We have those that are not very wealthy. We have those that are just getting by or, or barely getting by. We have this great, but the poorest among us is still in the top 20% richest in the world. The poorest one in this room. You see, the greatest wealth determining factor in your life And some of us, well, I'm a self-made man. No, you aren't. You were just born in the right place. Because there's a lot of places around this world where people work four times, five times harder than you and make a dollar. The greatest wealth-determining factor has nothing to do with any choice you make. It has to do with you being born in America. Most people around the world, they work their whole lives just to exist for the basics. They've never been on a vacation. They've never taken a shower. They don't have iPods, iPads, iPhones, i this, i that. They don't have all that stuff. 
I got in the shower this morning, and like two or three people had showered before me, and it was cold, and I was mad. It's a cold shower. Who did, you know, instead of going, oh, thank you that I even have water that comes from here, and, and I don't have to go to, the, to a well somewhere to collect it, and it's clean. And we've got closets full of clothes, and we've got refrigerator. You know, you just go to the refrigerator, you open it up, because you, you're just bored, you know. So we just go to the open it up. Uh, so, so we've got pantries, and we, we have... The United States is undeniably the richest and most powerful nation ever on the face of the earth. In 2000, the per capita income in the U.S. was 360% higher than the world's average. The, the uh, U.S. had a, a, a per capita income of $34,000, while the average uh, around the world was 7000 just a little over 7000 So basically, here's the deal. We are richer than 56% of the world. The 56% of the world lives in extreme poverty. That means they make $2 a day. That's what they live on, $2 a day. Now, you say, well, you know, in their countries, they can live on $2 a day. When they look at these statistics, they do a, a buying power comparison, mean, meaning what a dollar buys, what they compare a dollar what it buys here in America to what it buys there. So there's a, they, they adjust the statistics to account for the buying power of your dollar versus their dollar. So the equivalency is what, what we make a day, you know, what a hundred bucks a day, two hundred bucks a day, uh, eighty bucks a day, you know, whatever you make a day, they make two. Equivalently, so you would work all day slugging away at the computer, doing what you do, and you would make two dollars. And and the thing of it is, in our economy, we have people that that lose a job, but I won't. I'm not working for any less than I used to make. We we develop this entitlement because we've developed lifestyles for ourselves that are hard to maintain. And this is the issue with this guy. I mean, I could go on and read you more about this, but you know, the, I mean, $2 a day, one, $1 a day, half of those 56% only live on $1 a day. Because we have this skewed view because we live here in America and, and everybody around us is the same. And in comparison, the average American earns from 46 to 92 times more than the poverty-stricken comprising over half the world's population. So you earn, listen, even the poorest among us earn between 46 and 92 times, 92 times what someone else in the world earns. So when we read about the rich young ruler, I don't want you to, and this is why I spend the time to say this, is I don't want you to say, well, that's not me. It is us. And and I hope that we leave here today challenged about these things and so he says you know go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven now there's two things in your life that do not lie that do not lie number one is your schedule book it does not lie when you look in it you see where your time has gone you will know what god you serve the other thing is your can you guess your checkbook your bank statement. Your bank statement doesn't lie. It will tell you. That, you know, we were talking about kids and, and youth just in, in the office and looking at our website and just thinking about the fact that our website ought to be a reflection. That the main things on our website ought to be a reflection of where our hearts are. So we're, we're changing some things so that on the, when you call, pull up the main website, you've got the teaching of the word of God. You've got a section where our children are. You've got a section where our youth are and a section on, on ministry, outreach. Those are the things that matter to us. The children matter. So our, our, we want everything that we do to reflect that. And in our lives, our, our, our finances, all these things ought to reflect where, and, and truly will reflect what? Where our hearts are. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And that's the issue. I'll read a little bit farther and, and we'll... We'll continue to talk about these things. And we're like out of the frying pan uh, with, or into the frying pan with forgiveness, uh, in the fire with marriage and divorce, and now we're turning the heat up with possessions. Uh, you, know, and, you know, I'm not talking to you about giving, and I don't care if you ever give a dollar to this church. This has to do with your heart. 
It has to do with a transformed life. We'll get there. We'll get there. So he hears this, the young man, verse 22, and he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. And we got some great possessions. I mean, some of the stuff we got is cool. I mean, I'll look, we've got iPads, and I'm not knocking you if you've got one. I don't blame you. They're cool. And that's a fun gadget. We don't have to, you know, we've got three TVs in the house. I realize this, we don't have to share anymore. Because if we don't both want to watch the, TV, the same program, I'll just go watch it on mine. You've got to watch it on yours. We, can, we have all these things. We have great possessions. We've got garages and basements and storage units and sheds. And they're all full. And of stuff we haven't looked at in six years. And we don't even know why we keep it. We just do. Look, and I'm, I hope you guys know me well enough to know that I'm not condemning I, these things I had to go for a walk this morning just to talk with the Lord about these things in my life. I have this great burning desire because I've been teaching the Bible now for about 11 years, 12 years, no, no, 12 or 13 years now. And every time I teach it, it just works on my heart. And every time I get a little closer to the Lord as I begin to try to see what do these things mean in my life? Not preaching at the choir, but God preaching at my heart. And so there's this burning desire in my own life going, oh, you know, 10 years ago, when I didn't know the Lord that well, I made some decisions. And now I have to suffer with those decisions that I made. But now as the Lord has continued to teach me, I'm going, now how do I undo what I did when I didn't know these things? And now I'm setting about to try to simplify my life. I want to give a lot of time. I want to be free. This guy leaves, he leaves sad because he's in love with his possessions. The first commandment, no other gods before me. He's broken that one. His possessions are his God. He is stuck to them. How many of you have watched or ever seen the PBS program, The 1800s House, where they, they take a family from modern day uh, living with modern conveniences and they take them, they put them back in a house as it would have existed in the 1800s just to watch them kill each other. I mean, that's basically what happens. You know, they've got to uh, pluck the chickens and, and they, no refrigeration. And so someone, they bring somebody by selling only the meats that are, in, that are available and only the vegetables that are around at that time, they didn't have refrigerated trucks, so you could only buy what was growing then and, and no running water. And so they start out, it's kind of a neat experiment, but by you know, the time, I think they do it for like a year or six months, I forget how long this family does it. Man, they are at each other's throats, and they just, oh, I just need, you know, I, I need my, my phone. I can't deal without my cell phone. And, and, and we just get so used to a lifestyle that going backwards is just difficult. Is difficult. And so he goes away sorrowful. He knows Jesus is a good teacher. He knows Jesus is right. But the reality of the fact that his possessions own him. You know, what I, what I see this guy dealing with is the desire to be free and live for eternity. But the reality of making it happen in this life is too great. So his choice, choosing between Jesus and possessions, what does he choose? He chose possessions. That's scary to look at. But my question is, what would you choose? Or what do you choose? Because my possessions, man, stuff needs oil changed. Stuff, get, it breaks down. You know, you get a new computer, and then it, you got to call. You spend two and a half hours on the phone with the tech guy trying to figure out how to set it up. And then all of these things, all of our possessions, every one of them takes a, a uh, amount of time to manage it. And I'm just going, Lord, I want to be free. I just want to be free to serve you. I want to be free to be, go where I need to go and do what I need to do. And so for our lives, you know, uh, a lot of it is not necessarily selling it, but giving away in terms of sharing it. We built a house that, that's uh, more than we need, and we did that, and, uh, and, and now we have an opportunity to share that. But every time you choose to give, he says sell, and he doesn't say sell and then put it in your 401k. He says sell it and give it to who? To the poor. We spend too much time judging the poor. We should be blessing the poor. And I'm learning this lesson at the soup kitchen week after week. It is awesome. One of the beautiful things is you go there and it's not about, uh, you know, 
why don't you have a job and you drink too much? We just get to go there and love them. And it feels so good. And just to give. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And just to be able to give. And here's what happens when you give. When you choose to be a giving person, and this is what Jesus does in our hearts. This is, we'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes. But when you choose to give, you are choosing, and not just to give one time. What I'm saying, when you choose to have a giving lifestyle, be a person who is generous, you choose to live at a lower level than you could. So someone else can live at a higher level than they could. That, it's a choice. Now, we laugh about my truck, right? You guys see my truck. The thing's held together by rust and bungee cords. It's a 1993. And I'm being a little bit uh, transparent again. I've got my own issues with this. Everybody makes choices about what's important to them. So, again, I'm not trying to, to make anybody feel bad or guilty about uh, having you know, vehicles or things like that. Just giving you an example in my own life of a conscious choice that I make to drive a 1993 Nissan truck that's paid for and to give away each month um, as, a, as a base what could buy me a $35,000 vehicle. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm pro- some of you probably do more than that. So, but I'm just giving this by way of comparison. I'm choosing to drive an old truck. It's okay with me. I don't mind. I love the thing. But recognizing that as I can do that, I don't have a car payment, so I can give that away. It's not, I don't put it in savings. I don't put it away in college fund. It goes out the door. Because the other thing we struggle with, well, we're, we're generous to our kids. But we're, we're, we've marked Psalm 49. Go to Psalm 49 for a second. Boy, I've got to finish this up. Are you guys still with me? Am I wearing you out with this? Can we say, are, are your toes aching? I'm, I'm sorry. It's good stuff. Amen. Thank you. I love this church. You guys rock. This is great. How many places can you go and just nail people and then go, thank you, Pastor. You know, we, we love you. You're hurting us. It feels so good. Psalm 49, I'm just going to breeze through it. It's not real long, uh, but we'll just stop, make a couple of stops. But the, you, you'll get the point. Uh, not, a, uh, not a Psalm of David, a Psalm of Korah, his music leader. He says, hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. Is this just for America? Are there rich people in other countries? Uh, Someone in the fellowship was just traveling to Jamaica and said the difference between rich and poor there is unbelievable. So it's not just for America, it's for everybody. Both low and high, rich and poor together. The rich and poor together need to know this message. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil? This is for the poor person. Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? Being poor can be tough. Verse 6 says, Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother. You can't buy someone out of death. Nor give a good ransom, uh, nor give God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly. Not silver, gold, precious stones, but the precious blood of Jesus. And it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die. Likewise, the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever. Their dwelling places to all generations that's there it gives you a little insight into what's in a person's heart hey i'm going to buy this thing my i'm going to go on and on and on my house is going to last forever the kids are going to blow it you know because they never learned to earn money themselves because you gave them a trust fund and then they didn't have to work and they don't know how to manage money because they never appreciated being poor you know hey it's just just the way it is they call their lands after their own names you got alexandria in egypt named after alexander the great we've got charleston Charlestown, Philippi. You know, we've got plenty of stuff around here. I don't know who is named Fluvanna. That means something else. Well, actually, Fluvanna, Anne's River, right? So they name their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beast that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their saying. So you, you talk to rich people. They tell you how to get rich, and here's the get-rich-quick scheme. And then they pass on those sayings to the next generation. 
Like sheep there lay in the grave, death shall feed on them, the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave, far from their dwelling. You know, again, all that beauty, all the, we spend 20 cents a day on, on cosmetics in our country. And it says, their beauty shall be consumed in the grave. Amen for that, for me, that's all I have to say. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though, listen to this, though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. Isn't that the truth? When people see you prospering, when people see you doing well, hey, got a good job, making more money, praise the Lord. Men are going to praise you. And, and you're going to bless yourself. But he says, verse 19, He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor, yet does not understand, is like the beasts that perish. So you, you have to understand this stuff. You know, Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord... You know, he, Job had everything taken from him. Everything. except Even his health, except his life. And, and he worshipped the Lord. And he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Naked I came in and naked I'm going out. So back to Matthew 18, or 19. We'll finish this up here. Went away sorrowful. Verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Man, assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Mark would say it's the problem is those who trust in their riches. That's the issue. Uh, and a little parabolic there, a little illustration from Jesus. You know, we rode camels in Israel. They're big animals, you know. And, and, and I've tried to thread a needle before. You ever tried to thread a needle? You know, I... That's hard to do. Now, the funniest statement I heard on this, Joe Foch from Calvary Chapel, Philly, said, you know, said to try to get a camel through the eye of a needle, you need a blender and a lot of time. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's kind of gross. But in other words, it's impossible. It's impossible. Because we are so, th- those that have riches, you know, I see the poor at the soup kitchen. And they are dependent on God's, they're, they're like the birds. Who, who, they, they just have to, they're, they're fed, they have to go and get it, but the provision is there. Give us this day our daily bread. There's a dependence there. But we've got all of our bases covered. So they hear this, verse 25, they hear it, and they were, they were blown away. And they said, well, who then can be saved? Because they believe, like so many today believe, that if you are rich, and if you are prospering, that you are blessed by God, and that God loves you. And no doubt, you of all, they thought it was the rich that would be entering into eternal life. We still have that mindset today. Somehow, if you're poor, you've done something wrong, you've made God mad, uh, you're, you're not in his favor. And the rich, this is the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine. Jesus knows nothing about that. So, who can, I mean, if this guy can't be saved, look how rich he is, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Men are inherently self-centered and taken with um, accumulating things to themselves. Only God can change that heart in a person. And, and amen, he does, doesn't he? Now, now right away I want to say, you know, I thank God that it's not because of something that I do that I'm saved. We're not talking about the issue of, of salvation in terms of I've got to go and sell everything to be saved. I want to follow Jesus. I want to walk where he walked. And where do we see Jesus? We see him with the poor. Is it possible for a rich man to be saved? Absolutely. There's some in here. Uh, There is Zacchaeus. There is Matthew who wrote this gospel who was a tax collector, wealthy tax collector. He dropped everything to follow Jesus. He counted it, all the stuff, all the possessions that you have. If you were to sell them all, I mean, if you had to wait out, wouldn't it be worth the kingdom and eternal life? I mean, wouldn't you gladly? And you don't consider it a sacrifice because what you get is so much more valuable than what you gave up. 
Who then can be saved? Only by, by your grace of God can I be saved. And then it's by the grace of God that he begins to change that heart. And you begin to well up with love and desire to give. John would say, how can you see your brother in need and shut up your heart from him? I'll tell you how, because I love myself more. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I, love, I take care of myself. I deserve a break today, right? That's what they tell us. I worked hard for this. You work, if you work extra, pull some overtime. Don't do it so you can have more. Do it so you can have something to give. And I challenge myself. It's challenging, isn't it, folks? But Jesus is speaking right to this congregation, right to me and to you this morning. So we need to go home today and sit down and spend a little time with the Lord and reevaluate. Just look around the house, look at what we've got, reevaluate what's really important. And, and where are these things going to be in 150 years? In a, in a month, they're going to be outdated, right? In a, in a month, you, it's changing the way I live. It's changing the way I operate. Get involved, you know, as a family, get involved with people that don't have what you have and just give to them. Just do it. There, there's no time to wait. James tells us the one that knows to do good and does it not, to him it's sin. Amen? If you have any more questions about this, please just give me a call at the office. Uh, We'll uh, help you sort it out. Let's pray. Father, just as we close up today, I know the tremendous amount of um, difficulty that it is those of us that uh, want the best of both worlds. We want our cake and eat it too. We want to be rich and saved. We want to have eternal life and our possessions. And Lord, I pray that you would explode our hearts with love for our neighbors so much that we cannot help but give. That giving and, and, and generosity to those in need are, are just natural things that we do. And I pray that that's what the world would reflect on about us, not the fact that we are so wealthy, but the fact that we are so generous with the way you've blessed us. Lord, we acknowledge right now that all the blessings in America are from you. All the blessings in our home, our life, Lord, these are all yours. And we have learned, I have learned from the homeless that at any moment those things can disappear. Only by the grace of God go I. Lord, we love you. Uh, We want to follow you. If there's anything in our lives that get in between you and us, Lord, just I pray that you'd remove it out of the way and help us to remove it. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.